following message is from North Place Church. For more information about North Place Church, visit northplacechurch.com. Now you know this is Palm Sunday, those of you that have been raised in church, and so I want you to look with me to Matthew 21. It is a biblical context for what we know historically to be Palm Sunday. This is the first day of Passion Week. The last week of the life of Jesus is known as Passion Week. And so every day, beginning today, every day has a name. It's Palm Sunday all the way to Good Friday, and then next week is Easter. We'll celebrate the resurrection next Saturday and next Sunday for Easter weekend. But I I, want to begin today in Palm Sunday, the first Sunday of Passion Week. Matthew chapter 21 verse 1 says, And as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, and these two verses are from Zechariah chapter 9, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. All week long, I've been studying and praying over two very similar words, hope and expectation. And I know based on their definitions, they are very similar words. As a matter of fact, if you look up the definition of each word, The one word is used in the definition of the other. Hope is used to define expectation, and expectation is used to define the word hope. They are often used as synonyms, but while they are similar, they are not the same. Has God really begun to deal with me that I was supposed to talk to you in some way today about hope and expectation? The more I prayed, the more I read, the more I researched these two words, I never really got a whole lot of clarity. And even without clarity, I knew the Holy Spirit wanted us to learn something today about hope and expectation. And I didn't realize, you know, I I knew it was Palm Sunday, but I didn't look at, okay, it's Palm Sunday, i got to preach a Palm Sunday message. I, I felt I had to preach about hope and expectation regardless of the day. And the more I began to research and pray through and read the scriptures about hope and expectation, I realized that there is no better day to address the topic of hope and expectation than on Palm Sunday. This is exactly the message of Palm Sunday. If there's any day on the Christian calendar that highlights the difference between hope and expectation, it is this day. You probably know that the tone of Palm Sunday is celebratory. Pastor Bear referenced it. I read it from Matthew 21. They were waving palm branches, singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were shouting. They were lifting up their voice. They were crying, Hosanna. Palm Sunday is synonymous with celebration. 
Good Friday, the day of the crucifixion, is synonymous with the somber element of the suffering and the crucifixion of his death. Two different tones on Palm Sunday and then on Good Friday. One is celebration and one is somber. This, this is the day on Palm Sunday that the crowds are surrounding Jesus as he rides into the town on the back of a donkey. They are worshiping him. They are lifting their voices, declaring he is Hosanna. He is their Messiah. But in a few short days, this same crowd that is praising Jesus because they believe him to be their long-awaited Messiah, that same crowd is going to crucify him. They're going to shout the same voices and, and vocal cords that shouted Hosanna on Sunday are going to lift their voices in Pilate's hall and cry, crucify him on Friday. How can, in just a few short days, people go from the praise of Palm Sunday to crucify Him on Good Friday? And I think the answer to that question is simple. Palm Sunday is a day of unmet expectations. The biggest occasions in life always create the highest expectations. And usually, those lofty expectations that surround our big days are usually unrealistic expectations. We could say that around a lot of days, Christmas celebrations, birthdays, anniversaries, family vacations, and weddings. Almost always we go into these big days with a set of ideals, a a set of expectations that we place upon that day. And it's not uncommon after Christmas, after a wedding, after a big day for people to move into a time of emotional disappointment because the big day that they had planned and spent all this money on did not measure up to the ideal reality, did not meet their expectations. In first century Judea, this was the grandest occasion. This day was the day that possessed the highest expectations. It was Passover. There were three great festivals among these people. Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and Yom Kippur, which is known as the Day of Atonement. And of all of these three days, Passover had the highest level of expectation. All of the Jews within a certain distance of Jerusalem were required to come to the city for each of these great festivals. And many of the Jews that even lived far away, if they can only come to one of these major festivals, they at least made it for Passover. Now you have to understand, the very act of a long pilgrimage creates expectations. These people traveled for days. Some of them traveled for weeks. And if you're going to travel for weeks, there has to be an expectation that something good is going to happen when you get there. The very meaning of Passover created all kinds of expectation. Passover was a celebration of an actual historic event where God delivered the nation of Israel from Roman captivity, he, or Egyptian captivity, and He parted the Red Sea and they walked through. It is a celebration of the Exodus, their deliverance out of Egypt. And they passed these truths on from one generation to the next. And every time they would go to Jerusalem on this pilgrimage, they would rehearse the events of the Passover and they would come and celebrate it. Now you have to understand, at this time, This celebration had even more significance because they were now under the captivity. Their homeland had been invaded by the Roman Empire. So now they are in a sense under the captivity of another pagan ruler in Rome. And while they are under that captivity, every time they would go to Jerusalem, there are are known as five Psalms of Ascent. 
Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And it was among the religious custom, these five hymns, or these five songs, Psalm 113 to 118, they're what the pilgrims would sing on their way to Jerusalem. And while they're singing these songs under the Roman Empire, headed to Jerusalem, they're wondering in the back of their mind, is this the year the Messiah comes and delivers us from Rome the way Moses delivered us from Egypt? Is this the year the Messiah comes and overthrows Roman rule? So in the back of their mind, they knew God had delivered them in the past based on this day from the pagan rule. And now they're believing that possibly soon in their lifetime, they're going to see the same thing happen again. So the meaning of Passover created expectation. The city was buzzing with expectation. There were riots and protests against Roman rule that were common, so much so that the Romans would call extra soldiers into the city because there had been violence and and, and, and had broken out at Passover before because of these expectations of overthrowing Rome. It is into this context text that Jesus came riding on a donkey's colt which is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 9 of the Jewish Messiah it was foretold of their coming king that he would ride on a donkey's colt Zechariah 9 9 we read the quote from Matthew but this is what it says directly from Zechariah rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout aloud O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal, the foal of a donkey, hundreds of years before Jesus, this quote was stated. The Gospel of Mark even includes a detail that the animal that would be ridden on or that Jesus rides on had never been ridden before, which would communicate that that animal had been saved for something holy. That animal had been saved for something sacred. That animal was fit for royalty. When Jesus rode in on the back of that colt, he came through the villages of Bethany and Bethpage, and he rode down into the city off of the side of the Mount of Olives. Now get the imagery, even if you've never been to Israel, get the imagery with me. The Mount of Olives is directly east of the city of Jerusalem, and it is about 200 feet higher in elevation and about a mile away. So he's coming down off of this mountain, east of the city, about a mile away. In between the mountain and the city is the Kidron Valley. So you've got this mass of people lifting their voice, waving palm branches, and there are thousands of people that are following this man riding a coat at colt, and from the inside of the city, people are looking back at this spectacle coming off of this mountain. The Romans are watching, the Jewish leaders are watching, the people are watching, so that Matthew says the city was in an uproar by the time Jesus got to the city, and they're asking, who is this man? Because they've been watching the procession come off of the mountain into the entrance of the city a mile away from this elevated spot. As he rode, people laid branches and coats on the ground in front of him, signs that this man was royalty. As they shouted, Hosanna, we typically understand the shout of Hosanna to be a shout of praise, and it was. But literally, the word Hosanna, they shouted Hosanna, it means save now. The people were following him, believing him to be Zachariah's Messiah. And in their mind, they thought Zachariah's Messiah was a political redeemer, a military warrior-like king who was going to take over David's throne and free them just like Moses and other kings in the past had done. Hosanna, save now. It was a cry for deliverance. Hosanna, the cry, Hosanna, is a cry from Psalm 118, which is from the songs they would sing on their way to Jerusalem. I mean, it was all lining up perfect. These people are saying, this is it. This is it. In addition to all of that, 
These people had the historical context. 150 years before this day, Simon Maccabeus was the first king of Judah. After the time of exile, his brothers and he led a military campaign that overthrew another pagan kingdom, the Seleucid Empire, and had ruled Judah for a long time. And they rode into town to a celebration just like this. And so because of that historical context, again, reaffirmed in their mind, you have to see it. In a religious context, in a historical context, everything about Jesus' entrance fit with the most popular expectations these people had about their Messiah. That he would be a conquering warrior king like his ancestor David. People expected him to defeat pagans, overthrow them, restore the monarchy. Surely he is the Messiah. Surely he had come to overthrow Rome and set the Jewish people free. And on this day, Jesus seemed to fit the part. And this is where you begin to see the separation and the difference between expectation and hope. The people just seemed to overlook the components of Zechariah's prophecy that foretold that a king was coming in peace, not war. Never mind that historically a donkey was symbolic of an animal that was ridden in times of peace and to symbolize peace, not war. Never mind that Jesus revealed himself as a man of humility, not a man of conquest. You see, Jesus didn't leave heaven to come to earth simply for the praise of Palm Sunday. Jesus left heaven to come to earth to establish his work. That was what he was all about on Good Friday. Palm Sunday was just the avenue to get to Good Friday. He had his face set like a flint towards the cross, and he was getting through Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday to get to his divine appointment with death so that he could shed his blood, cover the sins of humanity. He did not come to meet expectations. He came to establish hope. Let me say it a different way. He was more focused on establishing hope hope than he was on meeting their expectations. Good Friday was the day that hope, eternal hope, was established because of his work at the cross. This has to be why there was such a quick turnaround in their opinion. You know the religious leaders and and the Roman authorities hated Jesus, but, but why did he lose such support so quick from the common person? I mean, are we that fickle? I know we're fickle, but are we that fickle? That we could go from saying this man's the savior of the world on Sunday and we're declaring by Friday, yeah, we're in on this murder trial. Uh, He's guilty, uh, convict him, crucify him, crucify him. How do you go from that on Sunday, Hosanna, deliverer, to crucify on Friday? It exposes the danger of building our lives on shaky expectations instead of sure hope. They expected a conquering king. They found a humble servant king, and they weren't happy. So what are we going to do when God doesn't meet our expectations? Because there's going to come a point in our life he won't. So are, are we going to respond like the crowd and be here this Sunday with our hands in the air singing Alleluia? And when something happens before the end of the week that shatters our lives... Are we going to turn our backs on him because he doesn't meet our expectations? It's inevitable. We're going to expect God to do something that he doesn't do. We're going to expect him to intervene and remove a difficult situation that he won't. We're going to expect him to intervene and bring healing to someone we love. 
And for some reason, he chooses otherwise. We're going to expect him to bring us success in some endeavor that's going to fail. Or for some sovereign reason, beyond our understanding, in some other area of our life, he won't meet our expectations. So what do we do? Do we turn our back on him? We will if we have expectation that is not anchored in a biblical hope. You see, our expectations are connected to what God does. Our hope is anchored in who he is. And sometimes, for reasons beyond our understanding, God goes silent. He doesn't answer a prayer the way we want him to, and it appears that his activity in our life has begun to diminish. It is in those moments when God is silent and his activity is limited, it appears in our life, that we have to rest our faith and our hope upon his character. It is easy to praise him when the Red Sea parts. It is easy to praise Him when there are physical miracle, visible miracles of healing. It is easy to praise Him when the check comes in the mail and the activity of God is visibly happening all around us and prayers are being answered and we feel His presence. The question is, can you worship when the Red Sea's not parted? Can you worship when the check doesn't come in the mail? Can you worship when there is very little visible activity of God in your life? Can you worship when the heavens are brass and it seems like God is not responding? Or is your faith connected only to your expectations and as long as God is meeting expectations then you are engaged and the minute God ceases to meet your expectations you become disengaged that's the danger of building your life on expectation instead of building your life on hope expectation is anchored in what God does hope is anchored in who God is and as we mature God has he gets to stop proving himself to us to earn our faith we learn to trust him as we mature in him we learn that when we cannot track him we can trust him we learn that when he is silent it does not mean that he is still we don't have to see all of the activity in order to stay engaged because our hope is anchored in his character our expectations are anchored in his activity and there are minutes when his activity is happening and our expectations are high but in those seasons when he goes silent and the activities of God in our life, the visible activity of God in our life begins to diminish. Have we matured to the place that we have a hope that is anchored in the unchanging character of who God is? You see, what he does does not make him who he is. It is who he is that allows him to do what he does. And when you come to a place of maturity in Christ, you are able to rest in who he is, knowing he is just and he is faithful, and if it hasn't worked out the way you prayed it, or the way you planned it, or the way you expected it, you know he has your best in mind, and you choose to trust him. So why does God not always meet these expectations? Here are a few reasons. Maybe God doesn't meet your expectation because you're expecting something that is not in keeping with his word or his will. Maybe God doesn't meet your expectations because you have gotten yourself into a situation by the power of your own choosing, and while God has forgiven you for the sin and disobedience, you are still living with the consequences of those choices. And we have wrongly assumed that when God forgives us, He not only removes the sin, He also removes the consequences, and nowhere in the Scripture is that ever said. When we, when, when we, when we live a life and we create a life 
basically we wind up sleeping in the bed that we've made. God forgives us of the sin. Our relationship with him is secure. I mean, we're on our way to heaven. That's awesome. But we still, even after we've been forgiven, often live the rest of our life facing the consequences of the decisions that we have made in our lifetime. And some of us are angry at God. While we are forgiven, we're still living with the consequences. And those consequences are the direct result of decisions that we have made, and yet we hold God responsible. Maybe God doesn't meet our expectations because he knows better for us in the long term to go through the difficulty that we're expecting him to get us out of. And in his sovereignty, he allows us to walk through the valley and instead of bringing us out of the valley, and Jesus is the very example of that, when he knelt in the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, God, If there's any way you can find it in your will to remove this cup of death and suffering from me, please do. And then he said, nevertheless, which is a word of surrender, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. If I need to walk through the valley in order to accomplish your kingdom purposes, I'll go through the valley. If there's any other way, take me over here. And Jesus surrenders to what God wanted in his life because the purposes of God sometimes are greater than what we can see. He has something better in mind than we can see. And I think that's the case that we find ourselves in Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. You tell me which is better. If Jesus meets the expectation of this band of followers and he becomes the Messiah that they want him to be, He becomes a temporary king, overthrows Roman rule, establishes a Jewish state, and he becomes a temporary savior and deliverer to a small group of people. Or would it be better, because they don't get the full ramification, for him to not meet their expectations, to move on to Friday, and to give his life as a suffering savior so that salvation will be available eternally for all instead of temporarily for a few? When you've got your worldview in mind, God, what he's doing at this moment, it may seem like he is making a mistake. That's how you go from Hosanna to crucify. Because you have expectations that are not anchored in the character of God. And somewhere along the way, he does not meet your expectations. It will test your faith when God doesn't meet your expectations. But before we turn our backs on him, we need to pause and ask why he didn't meet our expectations. It may be that in his sovereign grace, he is choosing something better for us than we would choose for ourselves. And this I know, no matter what God chooses for us, I still believe the words of the Apostle Paul are true in Romans 8. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Here's our biggest problem. We've adopted our culture's understanding of hope and expectation. When our culture refers to hope, they are more than likely communicating uncertainty. We say, I hope so. And when we say, I hope so, we're not not communicating anything that we're sure of. When we say hope, we're actually, I hope so, we are reflecting a desire that is clouded in uncertainty. Are the Dallas Cowboys going to win the Super Bowl? I hope so. Okay, that is a, a desire of some here, clouded in a large degree of uncertainty. Okay. I hope so. In a more serious context, are mom and dad going to get back together? I hope so. Is the medicine going to work? 
I hope so. When the doctor says that, when we're looking at difficult situations in our life, and we use the word hope so, we are, we are communicating this is our desire, but we understand what we're up against, and we know the odds are against us. It is the desire that we communicate clouded in a large degree of uncertainty. But biblical hope is very different. Biblical hope is a certain hope. When the Bible refers to hope, it is referring to something that is certain, something that is assured. It is an assurance that is anchored in the character of God. When the scripture talks about our blessed hope, and according to the writings of, of Paul to the Thessalonican church, that when, when he refers to the blessed hope, he is referring to the hope that Jesus will return back for his church. And the difference in my hope so of all of the other uncertain statements and the blessed hope is because the blessed hope is anchored into a promise that he would return. It is anchored in, his promise is anchored into his character. This whole issue, this hope of the blessed return of Jesus, the blessed hope, is anchored in the promise of God. The hope of scripture does not convey uncertainty. It is a certainty that has not become reality yet. And when my hope is anchored there, it is sure, it is certain. The same happens with the concept of expectation in our culture. We have diminished hope from the biblical certain hope to this conversation of uncertainty. I hope so. We do the same with expectation. When we talk about expectation in our culture, we're doing a little more than wishing. And wishing and hoping are not the same thing. Wishing is something all of us do. When we wish, we're, we're, we're projecting something we want or we think we need into the future. And just because we wish for something good does not qualify that wish as hope. We, wishing extends our egos and our desires into the future. Hope grows out of our faith. Listen closely. Hope is oriented towards what God is doing. Wishing is oriented towards what we are doing. Now, now think about this. Just if I, I, didn't, I didn't have time to develop a diagram, so you're going to have to use your play like with me. But just imagine, imagine there is a line that is coming from you with an arrow on the end of it, extending from you, pointing into the future. That's what wishing is. Wishing is projecting your hopes or your wish, your, your expectations, your wants and desires. It is projecting those things into the future. Wishing begins with you, and you're trying to create a preferred future, something you desire. A hope is anchored in something altogether different. God is omnipresent. He's already in your future. He's made you promises and written desires in his word about you. So a real sure hope is something that is born of God and there is a line from God in your future drawn back towards you and the arrow is pointing towards you. It is something he has already promised. It is in his word. It is promised for you. It is promised for your life. It is a hope that is anchored in the character of God that is waiting for you in your future. It has been directly given to you by God. That is a hope that you can rest assured on because it is anchored in God's word it is anchored in God's character it is not a wish that I'm building false expectations on that is born of me there is a massive difference that's why when you are hoping in a biblical hope for something God has promised there is a degree of surprise and anticipation because I can plan my future but only God knows my future and he has according to Jeremiah good things planned for you he has good things planned for me and so there's this surprise 
and this anticipation as I move into my future because I know there is this arrow from my future, from God coming back to me and I place my hope in the character of God around those things. To cultivate hope is to suppress wishing. To refuse to fantasize about what we want, but live in the anticipation of what God is going to do next. Hope is oriented toward what God is doing. Wishing is misplaced expectation. It is oriented toward what we are doing. Choose hope. Hope is living in anticipation of what God is going to do next. Listen to the Apostle Paul wrestle with these two issues about hope an expectation, Philippians 1.19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will not turn out for my deliverance. This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. He is waiting a very likely, at this moment, a very likely and potential beheading and execution for his faith. While staring death in the face, he rests in the prayers. He draws strength from the prayers of the brothers and sisters in the church at Philippi. And he surrenders completely in that moment to the sovereign plan of God. He knows if he lives, he wins. He knows if he dies, he wins. Enough to say, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. But I know regardless of what happens, I will not be brought to shame. Because to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's a powerful conversation that Paul completely surrenders to the sovereign plan of God, one that is beyond his understanding and beyond his comprehension. But I have been intrigued by the statement in verse number 20 when Paul uses the phrase, it is my eager expectation and hope. He uses both words. Eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. He expresses both a biblical expectation, so you can expect in the right way, and he expresses a biblical certain hope. He reveals that it is possible to have a biblical expectation and a biblical hope. A hope that is anchored in what Jesus did on Good Friday. A hope that is anchored in the cross of Calvary, the finished work of Jesus Christ. So whether he lives or whether he dies, he can rest in assurance with his future that his life is not in his hands, his life is not in Rome's hands, his life is not in the government's hands, his life is in the hands of the one that he has committed his hope. He has a sure hope because of Good Friday. Paul's expectation here is healthy too. It's biblical because his expectation in this moment is not contrived. It is not self-concocted. It is not a wish. It is an expectation in his heart born out of a biblical hope. An expectation that is born out of a promise from God. To, be, to live is to be working for the kingdom. To die, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. There is promises in the word of God that Paul said, there is an expectation in my heart that Jesus is going to work this out for his glory, whether I'm living or whether I'm dying. If I live, I win. If I die, I win. And my expectation is anchored in the hope of the character of God that he's going to handle this whatever way is best for his kingdom. I want you to notice this. 
the words eager expectation, the word in the Greek, obviously it was originally written in Greek and we translated it eager expectation. The words originally written in the Greek, the Greek word literally means from head watch. And what that literally means, it's a symbol of someone standing on their tiptoes and extending their neck out like a kid over the banister at Christmas to see what's been left under the tree. It's that, it's that sense of eager expectation. Paul's on his tiptoes and he knows what he sees down there may be death. He's on his tiptoes. He knows what he sees down there may be deliverance from prison. But he is so confident in the character of God and God's control of his life, regardless what is down there, Paul with eager anticipation and hope looks forward knowing that however this ends he will not be put to shame because of the character of his God his God is faithful his God is just so to live as Christ to die is gain his expectation here is healthy when your hope is anchored in the cross and your expectation is anchored in that kind of hope you can sleep well tonight you can surrender You can trust, you can walk with a sense of peace many in this world do not know. And if you don't have that kind of hope, and your expectations are not anchored in what Jesus did in Good Friday, then anything else you do is nothing but a wish. But when you have that hope, and every expectation in your life is born out of that hope, not coming from you, but it is in your future coming back to you from God, that is what real expectation is. Don't fall into the the trap of the crowd on this Palm Sunday. Don't go get pushed to the wayside or push God to the wayside because he doesn't meet your expectations or your preconceived ideas. Keep your eyes on the cross. He has purposes in your life that you do not understand. I don't know about you, but I have a great degree of expectation over what God is going to do in the next seven days. And you say, Pastor, you, you know, you guys, you always get excited coming into Easter and, and, and you always have these ideas about God's going to do something great. And, and I, I, I do for several reasons. One, because I know God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And I know he can do a lot in six days. Okay? I believe if he can step out on no place and reach into nowhere and grab nothing and throw nothing across nowhere and tell it to stay there all in six days and have time to take a break on the seventh then I believe that we ought to have hope, a biblical hope grounded in the character of our God that we're not going through motions praying for these people. He has the power to open blinded eyes and bring about great transformation. But I also know there are people in this room today that were not a part of this church last year at Easter, and they were a part of a host of people who gave their life to Jesus Christ last Easter, and I'm believing with all of my heart there are husbands and wives and sons and daughters and families who have no idea this Sunday what God is about to do to rearrange their future next weekend, and they will be seated with their family in this church, but more importantly, their name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and they will be on their way to heaven. That's why this matters. I believe that I have a healthy expectation. I believe my expectation for this coming week and next weekend is anchored in a real biblical hope because my desire is His. It's it's a bigger desire than His. His desire is that none should perish but that all should come to everlasting life. And, and next weekend, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be a weekend of hope connecting people with the hope that changed the world. 
And so, yeah, I, I, I know that some of my earthly expectations may be shattered. Some people may just tell me no. Others, what happens to me most of the time is, yeah, I'll be there, and they don't come. I, I know that feeling. But on occasion, they do. And on occasion, Jesus changes their life. I can live four out of every five sales calls end in failure. Those of you that are in sales, you know that. Four out of every five calls end in failure. People face rejection every day on their jobs for the sake of making a living for their family. And yet we're afraid to offer it once. And it has to do with eternity because we're afraid of being rejected. I'm completely comfortable with somebody telling me no. I'm completely comfortable with saying I'm going to be there and not showing. But what I can't live with is believing that there is something, there is a God in their future that has an arrow drawn to them because he has a hope for their life and they are on a collision course with the hope that God has for their life and he is intending me to be a part of connecting the dots between them and their preferred future and because I have a reputation I'm trying to protect or I'm too busy or I'm just not into all that, I rob myself and them of the opportunity of connecting. I can handle being turned down. I can't handle not doing my part. And so I want to ask you today as you leave, use these tools, meet with us. If you can't meet with us here, pray. We need heaven to kiss earth over the next seven days because there is not one amount of our creativity, of our hard work, of our planning and preparing that will change anybody. But you let one soul encounter the divine holy presence of God, it can change them for all of eternity. And that's why we pay the light bills in this church. It is not so that we can have good coffee and good space to hang out and everybody be comfortable in a climate-controlled auditorium. We pay the bills in this church so that people who are headed to an eternity without God have an encounter with who Jesus is and they understand hope for this life and in the one that is to come. I want you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place, and I want our prayer team to come and make themselves available to serve you. Let me say this. Let me just position our prayer time like this. Many of you don't know, because our church has grown so greatly, but there's a family in our church that's been connected for years. They're part of our church when it was really small. Um, has a tragedy this week in their family. And a 39-year-old mother of two didn't wake up Thursday morning. And now a young husband and... Uh, Two small children, 10 and 7, are having to cope with that reality today. When Haley and I were visiting and our staff has been with them and so many people in our church over the last few days, you don't have words to say. I refuse to repeat religious cliches to people that are grieving. I just refuse. It's better just to be there than to make a bunch of stupid statements. And we're the world's worst at that quoting some favorite verse, and I'm not saying the scripture doesn't have power, but just be careful when people's hurting that you don't just throw out Christian cliches. Sometimes the greatest thing you can do is just be there. And so that's what we were trying to do, just be there, because I don't have words. I have, a, I have a difficult time placing that into a neat theological box. And if that family's life was built on expectations, if Kelly and Miranda had built their home only on earthly expectations, there's not a lot going for them at this moment. But being with that family and knowing them like we do, they have built their family on hope. 
Not fleeting expectations, but lasting hope. Tomorrow when we walk into a funeral, yeah, there's going to be a lot of shed tears because it's just not right for a 39-year-old woman to beat her children to the grave. It's not right. But what you will find tomorrow, I know. What you find in their home today, I know. Is a sense of hope that transcends the heartache of this moment. I'm going to ask you, I don't know what season you're going through right now. And it may be as tragic or maybe on a scale of tragedy, it's a lot less than that. But in your heart, your expectations have been shattered. People have shattered your expectation. Church has shattered your expectation. God has shattered your expectation. It's Palm Sunday in your life. You're not really crying crucified just yet, but you're having a hard time saying Hosanna because it's just not working like you thought it was supposed to. These people are here ready to pray with you today because Palm Sunday gives way to a resurrection. There's a lot of tough days in between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. A lot of tough days. But Sunday will come. The stone will be rolled away. Victory is sure. It's not sudden, but it is sure. If you will put your hope in his character, not his activity, because he goes quiet sometimes for reasons we don't understand, put your hope in his character. And today, let us help you do that. These people are standing here ready to pray with you because I can tell you every one of these people have had expectations shattered. Some of them may be praying with you out of their own pain today because they may be going through it in their own life. We would love to have the privilege of praying with you in a season of shattered expectations, that God would give you more than a wish, that he would give you hope. I'm gonna pray a blessing over you, and while I pray today, before people begin to exit, would you come down the aisle and begin to let these people pray with you before it's hard to get here? Father, I pray that you will bless these people. I pray that you will keep these people. Bless them and keep them. Make your face shine down upon them. Be gracious to them. Turn your countenance their direction today. And I pray that you will give them peace. And for every life with shattered expectations, may they feel your embrace today and may you supernaturally impart into their heart a degree of hope that will transcend their shattered expectations. In Jesus' name. Amen. Others have come. These altars are available to you. God bless you. Come expecting with a hopeful expectation next week. Thank you for listening to this message from North Place Church. Feel free to duplicate or to share this message. For more information about North Place Church, visit northplacechurch.com.